Okay. All right. Welcome to the Q You Know podcast, where we discuss all things relative to media entertainment, all designed to support our career growth, from networking to breaking in the industry to climbing up the ranks, whether you're a newbie in the industry or that this podcast is for you, it's for us. My name is Shirley Renee Williams, and I am your host, executive producer, director extraordinaire. And not only do I love this media industry we work in because I get to tell hella dope stories, but I get to do it with the support of amazing people like Marissa. Marissa is an entertainment and business law attorney, author, entrepreneur, also mommy now, uh, and the principal of Crespo Law Office. She represents entertainment content creators, multinational publicly traded companies, private corporations, and media conglomerates and complex commercial deals and entertainment transactions. Marissa is also uh, my legal counsel, so I trust her with everything. So I'm super excited to be able to talk with her here and have her share all the gems that she gives me with the audience. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you, ma'am, and thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you for always uh, offering your insights, your your knowledge, everything that's in your brilliant mind. Because as creatives, we like we need people like you. We we desperately need people like you. So I'm going to jump mm-hmm. right into some of these questions. I want you. Oh, I know. I know a lot of your history because me and you have sat down and done lunches and talked about it, and it's so fascinating. But I would love for you to share with the audience about how you got to become a entertainment attorney. What was that journey? Yes. Um, I'll give you the abridged version for sure. Um, <clears throat> when I when I started out, I really started out back in college doing a lot of advocacy work. And so I was all for, you know, women's rights, um, civil rights. And so that's what I kind of studied through like my Africana studies programs and women's studies programs. Um, through that advocacy work, I actually was working with attorneys at the time, even though I wasn't an attorney myself, teeing up applications for what's called a U visa. Um, So that's a special visa for non-immigrants who are here in the United States through, um, in some cases, just different forms of maybe domestic violence. Um, There's a special one for like human trafficking, but I was kind of in that world and in that space. And so with that passion, I, I started kind of on the legal track. Um, fast forward, went to law school thinking that that's what I wanted to do and then spent a summer, an entire summer, 40 hours a week doing it. And I was like, damn, I'll be honest. Um, this is heavy. And it was frustrating. It wasn't just like on a personal front, like, I don't want to do this because it seems like a lot of work, but it was really frustrating because it was such a short-sighted system. There were so many like political loopholes, um, systemic issues that I could see for these non-immigrants, even if they made it here, were able to ultimately get a green card. So for that reason, I felt, you know, for my personal trajectory, I was as well, like what I was interested in, I was also interested in the art space. So I wanted to see how I could marry the two. Um, And the way I did that was actually starting to work in the immigration artist visa space. So think, I, I don't know her citizenship status, but let's just say like Rihanna, she's, you know, from Barbados and has her citizenship there. Anytime she's coming into the U.S., she needed to get a special visa to do so. Um, So I actually started transitioning into that space more 
And that's kind of how I fell into entertainment on the transactional side. Um, fast forwarding again <laughs> to today, um, I spent the beginning of my career kind of doing other types of legal work, uh, working as a real estate attorney for a large firm. And after two, two and a half years of doing it, I was feeling burnt out. And I felt like before I get typecast, I think it's time to move on. Um, so I made the big leap in investment in myself to kind of start my own firm where I was able to still do commercial real estate because that's where I could quickly get my bread and butter while at the same time marketing myself as an entertainment attorney, building that clientele base and that trust factor um, that leads me to the space that I'm in today. Wow, that's amazing. What are uh, what are some, can you share some of the clients that you've worked with or any of like the kind of deals that you've broken, like the deals maybe you've been behind that we may be aware of? Yes, I get um, to the extent where I can. <laughs> so I could say uh, when I first started, my first client was actually a talent agency slash talent management firm um, that is run by a minority woman. And so I was really honored that she actually trusted me. And really, she was my first client, <laughs> you know, starting my firm and helping her to become sag for franchise. So if you look up as far as talent agencies, reputable ones are usually sag for franchise because they generally will work with union talent. Um, that in itself was a process <laughs> to really get her, you know, sag for franchise in addition, get her certain services that agency managers have access to, like breakdown services, and really a lot of the hurdles that she dealt with as a woman of color. She was like, one of the prime examples of why I got into the entertainment space on the business side and kind of fusing together that advocacy that I have taken from another part of the legal industry, which is the fact that I feel like in entertainment, we are the content creators day in and day out, hands down, we keep America running. And yet when it comes to ownership, IP ownership in particular, we're so quick to give that up, whether we realize it or not. Um, we aren't getting paid respectfully for it to the extent that we we should in staying attached, you know, to the full revenue stream um, or streams that are available with that IP. And so that's kind of where I, I focus my efforts in. Uh, so a lot of the, the clientele that I do have, majority of them are actually women of color who are entrepreneurs. But as far as like the bigger companies that I've done work for, um, I've done work for Sesame Street, for Disney, for A&E, um, Vice. <laughs> so a lot of the major networks, uh, that way I had an opportunity to kind of see what is going on on the ground floor of like these major companies, what they're willing to move forward with and bend on in certain negotiated standpoints. They can also be taken back to help my people who are maybe on the other side of the table at the end of the day. Let's speak a little bit about IP retention. And I, I know from, you know, I bring you every contract of, of, you know, the things where I'm like, I don't understand this. I need my counsel to look at it. But I, you know, with all the stuff that I brought you, you are constantly educating me on how, like, if I sign this, this is what it means for my IP. Why is that so, why is IP retention so important? What is, what's the power in us owning our IP? It, it's a lot. It's everything. Um, now, what I will say, working on both sides, right, for, you know, the talent as well as for networks, um, the way the process rolls in some cases, it's very likely the case that you'll be giving up your IP. But if you're going to do so, make sure that it makes dollars, it makes sense. <laughs> so, um 
the reason why it's so important is here, here's a prime example. Um, I have an author who actually wrote an article. The article was presented in Vanity Fair, did well, got, got the traction, um, got so much traction and attention that in fact that she ended up getting a publishing deal out of it. And with that publishing deal, she was also able to get access into TV, film networks, where now that article is being optioned for a documentary. So you, you kind of see how the, the lifespan of this actually can fold out. Um, so it's not just about the deal that's in front of you, but the potential that that particular IP may have in merchandising. So you want to think about, you know, protecting your IP, meaning trademarks as well as copyrights. Um, that maybe the idea of a character that you have can spin off into an animated series, can spin off into a whole series in and of itself, scripted, um, or even just doing a documentary on the behind the scenes of how this is all being created, that having that IP gives you that flexibility and it gives you those bundle of rights that they talk about in, in the legal sector, that you're able to reproduce the work, you're able to display the work. So when you're entering the licensing deals off of that particular IP, that in itself is the right that you have as the owner of the copyright to do so. And contractually, you may give that right to someone else for a period of time or forever, depending on what's written in the contract. Um, and you also have the right to make derivatives of it, which is all the different ways that you can see it in different mediums. Dope. Now, okay, so for for those who don't know, IP stands for intellectual property. Marissa, are there are there situations where you can, because you just said a lot, it's like it allows you to be able to sell merchandise. You could option it as a doc. Um, are there are there situations where you can just give away some of the IP, a portion of the IP and retain? Walk me through a little bit of that. Absolutely. And that's in, in any industry. So um, dealing with, with entertainment. So again, going back to the example of the author who gets a publishing deal based off whoever the publishing company is, if it's a, a random house, for instance, um, that's a bigger wheelhouse. So they're going to want their hands in everything, meaning they, they have the exclusive right to you know, publish that book, reproduce that book, and maybe in you know, digital format. Um, in addition, might want to exploit film and TV rights, uh, but those rights you don't have to give to them. So let's say it's a smaller publishing house that that's not their wheelhouse. Um, it's really just truly they're they're great in publishing children's books, <laughs> but you're thinking about adapting this into a teenage series, then you might want to find a different agent for that. So with copyright, we talk about this thing of bundle of rights, some of which I just talked about a, a couple minutes ago. But really, it's almost like a toothpick, <laughs> like toothpicks of rice, or like a bundle of them in that sense, because you're constantly splicing and dicing based off of what this particular party has a skill set level in, their reach as far as access to maybe collaborative partners um, to get this into different formats, and then making sure that, again, going back to making dollars, making sense, that it all kind of routes back to different revenue streams as well. So in the exchange, let's say I'm talking to a uh, let's I'm talking to a Hulu. I have a film, and they want to they want to obtain the rights to or they I'm sorry they want to they want the IP right rights IP is it, or is it the rights to the IP? 
uh, rights to the IP. So when we say intellectual property, in, in that case, most likely we're talking about the copyrights, but the copyrights to what? So it could be a script that you've written or maybe an article that you've written that they want to adapt into a, a film or a series. Um, a lot of times people ha don't come with the full on format of anything, but beyond just like a pitch deck and a sizzle reel and concept. And we can certainly get into that. Um, usually in those types of deals, you're kind of coming in with less protectable forms of intellectual property. So the most protective form is, let's say, if you had a full-blown script or a pilot um, in connection with the work that you're trying to present to a Hulu, for instance. Um, if the acquisition team wants to pick it up, they may actually decide at that point, well, basically you're coming to us because you want us to invest dollars and put our name behind this. And then distribute it either on our platform or with our partners like Netflix, et cetera, that's going to cost you more likely than not. What that means then is that anything that's developed during that time that you guys are kind of working through an arrangement for uh, development to tee up for production, if they're not going to produce it in-house and if they're trying to sell it off to a Netflix, let's say, typically you're probably not going to own the IP unless you're Shonda Rhimes, you got serious leverage at that point. Um, and the reason for that is, again, similar to the, the music industry, when you had these record labels that were doing these crazy deals um, and the masters were owned by the record labels as opposed to the artists. The reason for that is because the mentality is you're coming to us to invest in this project and to make sure that we can recoup our financial benefit of it and also make a profit, we need to retain the IP to do so. Got it. So basically it's an exchange you give me some money so I can make this film and then I'm going to hand you over rights to my IP so that you could do what it is that you want to do with it. Now, with that said, where you can get creative and it really depends on who, who the party is on the other side of the table and how they value you, right? Um, what they're willing to do based off of the desire of the project, in addition to your background and your credentials, which you've worked on, there's definitely room for negotiation there where even if they're giving up the IP, again, you want to stay attached to the project and maybe any spinoffs and derivatives of it. How you get attached is something to be negotiated. Um, and as far as being attached, that's not only in terms of credits, so what people see outward facingly in the credits, but also what you can roll to the bank with, right? So how do you get paid and, and what happens if it gets um, distributed outside of the initial distribution deal that's being talked about? Like all of those things are kind of for discussion. Even if it's not something that can be pinned down in detail today, you still want to have some clauses in there to be able to negotiate for tomorrow. Okay, got it. Okay, because my next question was going to be, like you said, if you're a Shonda Rhimes, that's a different type of negotiation. But if you are, you know, someone where you don't really have a name, but you got a super duper dope project. You, you could be the next Issa. This thing could be the next hit. Mm -hmm. What is your value? What is your, well, we know what everyone should, should know their value, but on the table, what does the value look like? And what are, what, what can you negotiate for? Like, what is the compromise if, because you are such a person that advocates for, you know, trying to retain as much of your IP as possible, what's the fine line? So I, I feel like this, um, check it anytime you've got 
uh, a network or a studio that is very adamant in saying in order for us, it, or let's say a production company, it's a, a major production house that would provide production services in connection with your project, but in addition would also help pitch it to, for ultimate distribution on HBO Max, Netflix, Hulu, wherever. Um, some will actually come with the mindset and say, in order for us to, to pitch, we have to own the copyright. That's not true. Um, what, what could happen is that what IP are you talking about? Depends on what you came to the table with. If you came with just merely the idea, and when I say idea, like even in pitch decks, if it's just a pitch deck with kind of a general concept, but not really a fleshing out, if it's, if it's scripted of, of characters and the pilot episode and a couple of episodes, if it's, it's a little bit more bare bones of like, literally, I can have a conversation with you to say, this is the idea that I'm thinking of for a documentary. Anybody could do that. That's not really as protectable. So if that's what you're coming to the table with, um, and maybe some footage, proof of concept that you finance yourself to show them this is the, the type of project that we want to do that drew their interest. Um, they may actually more likely than not say, we, we don't even want that. <laughs> like you can keep that. Um, however, if we're using some of that for purposes of a new deck that we're creating and footage we want to incorporate into a new reel that we're going to you know put our hands on, for quality purposes to then take out to market, whatever that new thing is during the term of the engagement of the agreement that you have in that agreement, most likely would be something called a shopping agreement. Um, that's the IP that really we're talking about here that is going to have more monetary value probably, unless you have licensed footage. If, if you were, um, you know, basically if, if you were like, I forget his name that was following Kanye around for years and all of this like archival footage right, of, of Kanye throughout his career. I mean, you, you can roll bank on that, <laughs> 100%. Um, so if you have archival footage in connection with the subject of the material of the project that you're working on, that that itself holds a different value in which I would say that should come with, you know, a, a numbers play on that negotiations and you retaining ownership of it. That's not something you would have to give up. You can license it out to those respective parties whether it's exclusively for a period of time or in perpetuity, um, but that you actually can retain ownership of it. I hope that didn't seem so convoluted, but th that's how I would kind of distinguish about how most people kind of come to the table with a lot of projects to major networks. Got it. Let's talk a little bit about like agreements. What is a shopping agreement? So a shopping agreement is like the shorthand cousin of an option agreement. Uh, so the option agreement, I'll start there first. The option agreement is something that's a little bit longer in form. You usually want exclusive rights. That's what you're paying for in an option. Um, how much in, in an option is to be negotiated. Um, but generally it's usually like somewhere around 10% of the actual purchase price for whatever it is that you're optioning, whether it's archival material, or it may be a script, a book um, to adapt into a feature film, et cetera. The, the term on an option agreement is a longer term, somewhere around um, 12 to 18 months, typically on the shorter end, could be up to three years, but usually there might be tiers of option fees that would have to be paid uh, for those extended terms. And that gives the producer who's seeking that option the right to really adapt this material into whatever project they're trying to do. It could be a podcast, feature film, series, etc. Um, 
The shopping agreement is a shorter form that generally there isn't money exchange. When I say that, there's the caveat that it depends on what kind of material you're coming in with in that shopping agreement. So again, the, the prime example of archival footage, um, access to people that you've already got locked in, those types of things come with a monetary valuation that you can try to negotiate with the other side. Um, but for the most part, the shopping agreement is usually for a shorter term. It could be anywhere from three months to a year um, that that party has exclusivity to be able to shop that project around in the marketplace to see whether or not there's desirability for it. And if so, then possibly working out a deal with that. And uh, we call them buyers, uh, but basically with the distributor, a third party production company, whomever. Um, and, and the benefit of the shopping agreement for producers is that generally speaking, they don't have to pay any money up front. Uh, it's, it's cheaper, it's quicker, it's a shorter form agreement. And it gets right to the point of a lot of things uh, outside of the term and what happens to the IP that's developed during that shopping period. It's, it's more of a shorthand of also an agreement to agree down the road in a separate agreement in long form once we actually have taken it out to market and you know that you got a potential deal in the works with a major network or, or studio. Can you give me examples of how we may see an option agreement and a shopping agreement at play? Yes. Um, an option agreement. Okay, let me think this through so I can give an example of both. Sometimes in the same transaction, you can ultimately see both agreements present. So let's say you're doing a documentary, um, a documentary film that's a limited four-part series that's on a criminal who um, a criminal who not only has escaped the US, but has somehow found a way to ultimately work for the FBI and just to have a whole story about their narrative, right? Okay, well, the main subject, <laughs> if as a, as a producer, who do you want in the documentary, right? That'll give the authenticity of it. You're gonna want that person if they're still alive. And you're like, well, hell, I need to hear from him or her. Um, and, to, and for people to know that we have access to that party, like it also builds some form of credibility or it helps to show contradictory notions of like this subject person and the FBI agents, um, you know, any victims who were along the way experiencing this party, the personal side of his life and access to his wife and whoever, like these are the people, the subjects that you want in, as interviewees, right? So if you want to tell the story of his life, then you're going to want most likely to get it, his life rights. Well, the life rights will likely come in the form of an option agreement. It could start off as possibly a shopping agreement, but let's just say he has counsel and, and the counsel's like, no, absolutely not. Like you want to tell his story. This needs to be done a certain way. Um, we're not doing it for less than like a hundred thousand. If you want exclusive access to his story, period, point blank and his materials. So that's where you might see an option agreement. And if you can, you try to negotiate for as many different rights as possible to tell it as a, a docu-series, a film, a podcast, because maybe when you take it out to market, buyers may say, you know what, actually, why don't we start off with the deal that we have with iHeart? Let's do a podcast, four-part limited series. If it, if it works out, there's a lot of attraction there, then we'll flip to an audiovisual form. Right. So you want to try to get as many rights as you can in that option.
Um, the other people that I mentioned could be his wife. It could be uh, the FBI agents that you're trying to interview who talk about their experiences with him and the raw tension that there is. Um, you might want to do a, a shopping or an access agreement. But then let's just say you have a director who's coming on board that wants to do this documentary and they have a huge stature, that might be a party that you would negotiate a shopping agreement with because you want to attach their name to the project to take it to market to see, hey, I got this director, this hot director that's doing these docs on Netflix. Netflix will pick this up easily because they've already got three, four great documentaries from him or her. That's an example where you might see the shopping agreement versus the option. Okay. Now, this that was great. That was so helpful. Now, are we saying that, like, thinking about life rights, are we saying that option, an option agreement is just another name for life rights, or is life rights technically different from an option agreement? It's, a, it's very similar. It's a little bit different in the sense that you're buying the life story rights. And so um, it, it's still to be able to adapt it into whatever medium you want to actually tell the story in. Whereas option agreement is kind of like, here's the general option. If, you, if there's a book, if you're actually taking material and leaning on a book, leaning on an article, leaning on, you know, this person actually telling their life you know, their life experiences to you, that's an option that you're going to be seeking, generally speaking. Life story rights is a form of the general option. And w at when do you need to get life rights? Like, at, at, in what type of situation should, should someone obtain somebody else's life rights? Yes, this is a great question, because a lot of times this comes up, let's say the person, um, the person has passed it kind of creates an interesting scenario because depending on the state that they actually passed in, um, each state has their own basically po like post-mortem rights. Some actually honor, others don't in terms of life rights. Life rights can actually terminate upon the person's death. However, if they contracted it away in their will and they said, I hereby devise all of my rights to my sister. Um, and that sister is appointed as the executor of the estate, even if that respective party passed on, those rights might still be living if they are honored um, in a state that has postmortem rights, where you still have to contact the estate to actually get those rights to tell the story. So I remember um, trying to get the life story rights for, um, for vanity went after she had passed, um, still had to go through an estate for that, you know, to be able to tell those stories. Um, I remember doing one for uh, a black Catholic nun in the Midwest. And we still, that one was actually a little bit more complicated because the Catholic church was involved too. So it made an interesting scenario that they were actually trying to canonize her in a way through the Catholic church process. Um, it, it was a point of reverence, but it kind of added a wrinkle in terms of what could be negotiated. So even though the person may have passed on, um, you still have to ask that legal question and get legal counsel to assess whether or not you in fact need those life rights. In a general scope, whether the person is dead or not, do you need those rights? 
um, I, I err on the side of caution of trying to get those rights unless you're solely utilizing public documents, public information that people know about this party, or let's say it's a book that you're actually leaning on that's talking about this particular party. You may not need to get the life rights of that party, but now you have to get an option from the, the author of that book. You see, you see the difference? So it can get a little bit more nuanced, but to err on the side of caution, I always say it's always great to seek counsel to really assess that litmus question of like, should I get the life story rights so that way I don't get sued for defamation or for the right of publicity if that's um, if it's a celebrity or someone that's been thrown into the limelight who you're telling the story of. So it's really to prevent any type of like litigation and being sued for defamation, especially if you are a documentarian, you know, you still want to move by the bounds of integrity. Yep, that was leading me to my next question. I remember maybe a year ago, PGA had did a event around life rights. And my takeaway from it, uh, this was folks who worked in legal, was that you technically don't need to obtain life rights but it is a good safety thing to have. Would you agree, disagree? Yep. Yes, because um, here, here's the, the deal of it all too. You have to think about, right, you're, you're producing, you're doing this whole thing, you're trying to create the project. Projects made in the camp, mm, bam. All right, now we're taking it to market. Boom, 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 who wants this, who wants this, bam. You got a buyer. Buyer's like, okay, cool. We want to license it, have it on our platforms. Um, we need you to get E&O insurance. Okay, cool. What's that? Let me figure that out. You Google it. You start calling around, trying to figure out companies. And then, bam, E&O insurance, they ask the question, do you have the following agreements? And if you're doing a story about someone, when it comes to insurance carriers, basically, they want you to pay them for them to tell you what they don't cover. <laughs> All right? It's the craziest thing. Um, but we're like, yeah, cool. Sure. How much? Um, but that's how the business works. So at the end of the day, your E&O carrier may actually really care, even if it seems like up to that point, it was not a major issue whether or not to get it. And that could actually bar you or prohibit you from finalizing your deal with a potential buyer because they're hung up on the fact that they don't want to acquire any type of litigation, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the deeper pockets, most likely. So of course, their name is going to be smattered on that complaint that gets filed, or at least in a cease and desist letter, something of that nature. Um, the other reason why it's important too is really thinking about it from the framework of let's let's release it back and think about projects that we've seen, right? Um, Aaliyah's biopic. How was it? You know, I think a lot of people complained about it because they were like, ah, this wasn't that great. The estate didn't even approve it, right? And so from the network, probably the network's assessment, they were like, all right, we already talked to risk management as far as our insurance carrier for E&O. Uh, we're willing to take this risk. We're going to do it, right? Um, but I'm sure there was a lot of blowback off of that. And so you have to think, and I only bring this up not to throw shade, but I, I say it to give an example of like, the optics of what that looks like and then how that could affect your future deals. I have so many questions and I only have 15 more minutes left. <laughs> with you. 
So we gotta do. Oh my goodness, sorry. I want to do a like a part two where we can talk about distribution deals. But got you. Okay. Okay. I I wanna I have a a, a question like what are like three really big mistakes that you see creatives make? Mm. Oh, I love this. Okay. Um, number one, lack of patience, lack of patience, lack of patience, lack of patience. Um, and I say this because we are in such a popcorn making industry where people just like, they see the success and they're like, oh, boom, they happened overnight. <laughs> no, ma'am. No, sir. Uh, talk to those people. They will tell you those rough nights that happened 10 years ago. <laughs> this project that they were trying to develop five years ago. You know, like it it takes a while. But the patience level of people today is just like not a zilch, non-existent. So I would say the mistake is having that lack of patience and not letting the process, the, not only the creative process unfold the way it needs to, but also the business and legal affairs side. It's so important. Because I've seen people kind of shoot themselves in the foot trying to get the deal done for the sake of like, all right, I got a development deal with so-and-so. They want to they wanna be able to post this on social media and globe, but you actually cut yourself the potential for true negotiation to take place, which honestly, when it starts getting into that land, it can take a while. And I, and I get it because I'm on the side now of trying to do one of my own <laughs> docuseries projects and flipping to the head of a producer, I feel I, I feel it. I understand the anxiety level when you're like, man, you know, I hear other people are doing ideas like this, like we got to get out there, et cetera, et cetera. Like I totally understand and I have to catch myself um, as well, but you can really do a lot more damage than good, both creatively and from a legal perspective of not having that patience. So I think that's like one of the biggest mistakes I see. Um, the second I wouldn't say it's in any order, but the second one I can think of um, is not thinking through your game plan with a project. So I know we're in the creative space. Um, sometimes we don't want to think about the business. We just want to think about the creative and like let that flow, right? But part of that is also, especially as a producer, I feel like you're wearing two hats at the same time, right? Actually, many more hats if you're in the independent realm, but <laughs> the main two are like, hey, I need to produce this project. How do I do this at a cost-effective budget and get this done as quickly as possible with the utmost skill <laughs> right, and quality. But then you also need to think down the road, okay, where do I want to see this project ultimately? You have to kind of reverse engineer this a little bit, right? Is your ultimate goal, I want to get the, everyone wants to get it on Netflix. Let me tell you something. Netflix, they try to take everything, 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 <laughs> okay? So what does that mean? <laughs> they want all rights. <laughs> There's no negotiation, baby. You know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. So if you are someone who is like so tied to your project, you're like, oh, this is my baby. I've been working on this for years. And finally, I put some money together, shoestring budget. Here's what I got, right? Um, as a proof of concept, not even a full full project chances are if you're going to go to them asking for any money, like there's not going to be a whole lot that can be negotiated. Um, and I would probably say you should probably continue to do that project that's to heart um, as an independent project <laughs> and to really get your name out there, run the, the festival circuit, see what kind of deal you can get there. Um, and the reason why I say that is because if you are, if you're not amenable to the negotiation process and if you are so 
start you know, like staunchly entrenched in I need to be the one directing, producing, need the writer's credit, etc. You're going to have a tougher time because you're going to lose some of those titles as other parties are going to be coming to the process, whether you want them to or not, if you're asking for these larger companies to be involved because they're going to go through their trusted production companies. They're going to want to go through and utilize directors that they've been working with because they they know how those directors work. They've done deals with them. They can turn them around quicker and it's less of a negotiation because they know each other, right? So um, I think having a game plan in mind of like, where do I want to see this? And like, what are my absolute, like, I need to have this in a deal. (laughs) You You need to write that down. Think about it. Because that may dictate whether or not do you actually just go ahead and self-finance and try to do grant funding? Um, you know, figure out the financing model behind your project to actually get it made and in the can, and then you take it out to market to try to get a license deal. Or if you're really trying to just like get this thing off the ground as quickly as possible, have a project under your belt that you're walking around with just a pitch deck, maybe a pilot, then will likely have to get rewritten by a more established writer if you're newer then understand that you're probably not going to own. And then you have to think about money-wise what you can do to kind of stretch out longevity of that project, you being on it, the services that you're rendering and, and putting your blood, sweat, and tears into. Um, so I would say that's that's the second biggest mistake is that that's not thought about. And that's the benefit, not to sound like a greasy palm salesman uh, of an attorney, but that's really a benefit of a true attorney who is not like truly legal beagle, but a business-minded attorney as well that can really, who knows these deals, runs these type of deals that we can have that type of conversation with you. I think it's fully worthwhile to have those discussions to figure out what your game plan is going to look like. Um, third mistake. Uh, ooh, this one's a tricky one. I would say the third mistake Is, and it's kind of like rolling with the second one. And this is like the other part of it too. In development, um, I guess like really assess and be honest of skill set level and what you've produced and whether or not you would actually see the quality of what was produced, like actually on camera, in the cam or in editing. Is it something that could easily be flipped to a network, right? Networks will always tell you like, uh, it's not, <laughs> you know, like we got to think about the, the standards, but I think having a great editor um, is important. And I think being able to have real colleagues, not yes men, but real colleagues who will tell you, no, baby, we, you got to go back <laughs> or scrap that. I think, I think is, I think it's necessary. I really do. Um, because unfortunately this is like a kind of snooty and that kind of, it's a very snooty industry full of nepotism. Um, you want to put your best foot forward, right? Sometimes like you literally only get one shot. So you really want to make it your best. Um, and I know like I get calls all the time where people are like, can you, can you pitch me to agents? Can you pitch me to networks? I don't, I don't do that. And I I specifically say, I don't do that because I don't want to be in the market I'm an attorney. I'm not an agent. <laughs> Number one, that's more for an agent. Even agents, you won't really hear from them. And the reason why is because they they will find you. Trust and believe. 
agents will be paying attention to who's really out there, whose names do they see at the festivals, et cetera. So honestly, the best thing you can do is put your best work forward and have your name out there as constantly as possible, consistently as possible. Um, and it builds a buzz about you and hopefully in a, in a good way that they will come looking for you. And then the attorneys are there to help negotiate um, those deals when they, when they arrive. But um, no one wants to put their name on something for the sake of trying to get a deal done. Like, because we're also repeat, we're, we're the repeaters in the industry too. So like, if we send a project where people are like, what is this? <laughs> They'll never pick up the phone for us again. Right. And they won't respond to our emails. Um, so we have to take that more seriously. And again, it's all about integrity all throughout the process. So I think as my final third point is really just really assessing your true skill set level, especially because there's a lot of people that are like, I'm a producer and they literally just picked up a camera. Like, Today, I'm a producer, y'all right here. <laughs> Bam. Film on this. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I mean. It's like, let's, let's be real. Like you, if, this isn't something that you do day in and day out. This is not to be disrespectful. It's just really to be honest of like, really take that craft seriously then because there are people that have really put their livelihoods on the line to do this type of work. And so to have that title, um, make sure it's not in vain. I love all that. Be patient, think through your plan, deliver your best work. Marissa, have you ever seen people sign a contract, a deal that cost a lot that was just like, oh, this is, this wasn't good. This was a bad, uh, bad decision. <laughs> um, yes. One that I can, one that I can think of. Um, so this isn't even in like, just in like the film TV space, but, but honestly, you know, I used to do music as well. I see these all the time, but, um, there was one, I was like really taken aback and it's by a well-known R&B group that like we used to love rocking to. And I was, I was really, I was really shocked at just, I guess, you know, I understand that the way the industry was also run too, <laughs> 20 something years ago. Um, it was definitely much more, you know, record label friendly, studio heavy, you know, everything was for the networks and not for artists. So, but even with that in mind, I was quite surprised that these are people that were rep by agents and managers um, for the type of deal that I saw. So what was interesting about it was how I spent a couple of hours explaining the contract because it, it came down to like, I haven't seen royalties for a song that like we were like, y'all, eh. you know, back in the day, I was, I was shocked. I was honored. I was even getting this call, but then I was like really shocked and, and saddened by the fact that, you know, one of these artists is not going to see, not going to see the, the monetary benefit of it. It's too long gone, too far gone at this point. Um, and, and had to do a couple hours of like reverse engineering of like, this is what the contract said. Um, here's the other problems that I'm seeing here and, and just really a reworking of what I thought would be like the basics that if you had a team behind you, um, that was astute as well and just diligent and respected what they were supposed to be doing would have already handled and it, it wouldn't even been down the road that it had been at that point. So yes, to answer your question in short, I have, and then to add a number four <laughs> to your Previous question, 
I think one of the biggest mistakes too is not having the right team. Get get your team together. Um, and I, of course, I will advocate for having the right, you know, entertainment council behind you. And what I mean by the right, it's whatever is your fit. You know, like you you should do interviews and if you can get on their on their calendar, um, even if it's a consultation, it'd be worth the consultation. It'll really talk to them, hear how they give advice. Um, hear how they assess your matter. And also if you just have that gut check, like you feel comfortable with them too. Um, I think that's worth having respectful entertainment counsel that really is in the business of doing this to help counsel you and help advise you and be a part of your team. Don't don't look at him or her as just kind of like a one-off or I'll get to them when I have the money to do it. You know, it's, it's worth the investment. It truly is. Um, I, I do say that in like finding the right fit, of course. Um, and I, and I say that because a lot of times we will already be thinking down the road further than you may have to at least ask you those questions up front to prevent you from those costly mistakes down the road too. Oh, I love all this. And like, when I think about, let's say you're, you have a project in development and you're trying to put together what, cause I'm hearing you say you need a team, you need a great team. Who are some of the people that you need mm -hmm. on your team? I think about like a solid producer, right? So doing the work and yes. finding a way to get you a super dope producer. But let's say you're fresh out of school, you don't need a super dope producer. Find someone who's at least smart and likes to read and study so that they can learn and gain insights or that they'll go out yes. and get some sort of apprenticeship where they can learn from an already established producer where there's a will, there's a way. Would you say that having, having, some sort of legal counsel on your team is a necessity? It is. I think so. Um, and the type of legal counsel I'm thinking of, and, and understand who you're talking to, <laughs> right? So I could be biased in this, right? But if I were in the market looking for counsel, my personal preference is I want to find counsel who does, you know, film, TV deals, podcasting, like they really do it. It's not just like I did one one time because I had a friend who needed some help. But like they they know and have a business sense of like this is typical in the industry this is not right, um, and you want that person who kind of treats the scope of their representation that way as well. Where and, and again that there's fee structures all attached to that and everything else. But with that said, if you can afford it, if they're amenable to working with you and want to work with you. Um, you want that person to be someone that you can kind of tap every now and again. Don't abuse it, please, because <laughs> we are, you know, max and tax. So, you know, it is important that you kind of maintain that, that part of the relationship. But I think having someone that you can really count on to give you legal advice and also business advice, because there's some attorneys that are purely legal people. They're like, don't call me for this type of stuff. You figure that out. You're the producer, you're the director, you know. Um, but there are some, like myself, who is just as much of a creative in this space as an attorney. And so I will, I will help dance that line, you know, from time to time. I think it, it is important to have that type of counsel um, behind you. But even if you can't afford it at that point, um, at least in teeing up for the contracts, which a lot of people think the contracts happen in the production phase, but it also happens in development. So what that means, like what does development mean? At the time that you, let's say you created the pitch deck yourself, or let's say you didn't, you need a contract with whoever you did, whoever did the pitch deck for you. So they don't start acting like they actually had some material like contributions to your project to be attached and want 
some type of monetary income. So there's different types of contracts to establish that. Um, if you're a producer and you're talking to another producer, someone who may be more established, has a track record that can help pitch and whatnot, regardless of your relationship, it should be easy to get that on paper. You should get that on paper. And if they start getting like real wieldy about it, you should worry <laughs> off the strength that this is a, this is a heavy paperwork process in business. And so it shouldn't be unexpected uh, and a surprise to anybody. Um, if you're getting a director, same thing. So as part of that, that team who you need to have in the beginning stages, I definitely think if you're the producer, um, if you're, if you're a hybrid, your producer, your director, got it. However, are you a producer that also knows budgets? And if you're serious about the money and if you got serious money coming in from, you know, grant funding, from third parties, you want to contest like you want to be able to manage that money very well and have a stretch as a producer. So getting a line producer, someone who does the financial side day in and day out is a good person to, to have. And again, I know, you know, audience level, we're speaking to those who are newer versus those who are more established. Um, those who are newer, if you don't have these resources, you know, again, if you're like straight out of school, find those who had that interest. <laughs> However, you know, like how I even back to my story initially, I didn't tell the part when I was in law school that my final year, I decided to um, take an elective at Columbia's film school. And I took a course specifically. I had to petition to get in. It was this whole process, um, even though I'm giving them my money. Um, I had a petition to get into Richard Brick's class. Um, Richard Brick used to be the line producer for Woody Allen. Um, he, did, he did quite a few projects to look up, and he was actually New York's first film commissioner. Great guy, extremely great guy. He saw the value of having me in his class as much as I saw the value of being there. And through that, I was able, as like one of my first entertainment gigs, <laughs> I was actually working as a line producer on a Russian independent film in Brighton Beach, New York. I had never done that before, but I, I was someone who wanted to understand the business side. And I thought a line producer was a perfect blend who is on the creative, but also on the business end, working the numbers and crunching the numbers and looking at the contracts. If you have to sign up at, with SAG-AFRA as a signatory production company or the DGA, like I was learning all of that kind of on the fly. So find, you know, I'm sure there are other people that think like that, um, even when you're coming out of school that you can utilize as a resource to, to help you. So whether they were in film school or they were in business school wanting to get into the entertainment industry. So be open to your network. Like what I actually learned the power of getting everything on paper from you. You know, you are always, <laughs> you are always like, did you get a contract? Did you get a, and you, and like engaging with attorneys like Marissa, you know, Marissa, what she does, what she does is because she knows a lot of the things that I've done are coming out of pocket or out of a, a, a very small development budget. So she gives me things that are standardized. Like she's like, I'm going to build a deal memo template. And this is something that you can duplicate for the rest of your team and just tweak out here. She highlights the language that can be tweaked out. And then there's certain things where, yeah, I can't really be standardized and I have to bring to her, but it's not a situation for some of us who have financial considerations where it's like for every single thing we have to engage legal all the time. You can right. find way, yeah, you can find ways where, you know, you get, you understand what are the specific and the 
more bigger things that I need to engage legal around. But another word that Marissa used that is so important is investment. It's an investment. It's a it's an insurance policy. It's a protection. And if you are serious about your work, if you're serious about what it is that you're creating it in your mind, it then starts to become one of the easiest investments. Right. And then it's an exchange. We get to bless each other. I get to bless her business. She gets to bless my my projects. I just saw a situation recently. A young lady called me and she said, Shirley, I want to can you give me some advice? She's like, I've been working about 40 hours a week since January on a project. We just got a big Sundance uh, grant. We were about to film and the producer ghosted me. I was supposed to get an EP credit. I've pumped my own money into this and she didn't have anything on paper. And I was like, I, one says, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even know what to tell you. Two, um, I was like, you can go talk to legal, but I don't know how much people are gonna be able to support you. But, and I didn't wanna harp on, this is why you need paper. This is why you need paper because she was already yeah. in a very sensitive and emotional, I mean, she was distraught. But again, this is a situation where, I mean, I put my interns on paper. Everybody has to sign deal memos because you never know, you know, when you need that that protection. So I'm so glad that you you put some strong emphasis on that. I feel like that's the real gut check, right? Like I could talk about the paperwork, the paperwork, it seems, you know, intangible, but that's real palpable of like, ooh, <laughs> how do I fight for that? And trust me, that's much more expensive in hiring counsel to now have to start asking for email exchanges and like, what did you guys text back and forth? How much did you put forward? Let me show me evidence of that. Because now they're doing what's called discovery, which is kind of, it's a pre-litigation matter at that point. Not, you know, not saying that you want to ultimately take it to litigation, but even if you're trying to settle for something, you're settling for less than what you may have been able to get if you had negotiated up front. And, you know, since we're on that, because I'm pretty sure people get in these situations all the time, what okay. should yep. what should you you dedicate it at that? We had this call two weeks ago, six and a half months in, 40 hours a week. We could do the math. She pumped in her own money, was was promised this EP credit. She helped write the grant. They won the grant. Now the, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the producer, and this is based off what she's telling me. Of course, there's always two sides to a story. But she told me that the producer took her name off of every, all the promo material, social media, website. What what can someone do in a situation like that? Oh, pray, baby. Um, pray, get counsel, and hope, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I know that was probably... <laughs> It's Friday, y'all. Sorry, being honest. Um, <laughs> but no, in, in all seriousness, it all becomes negotiable at that point, right? And it's truly what you can get the other side to cooperate on. I had a similar situation like that. Someone came to me last year and said, um, you know, same thing. They took my name off. I helped to arrange for the interviews and this and the third. I helped flesh out the, the storyline for the documentary um of like the direction of it, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it a lot of it was not even in like 
email communications or things of that nature. So at that point, and now there's a deal that's on the table and suddenly they're being shut out from like, oh, how much did we get? Did we get in advance? Actually, that person helped to get the deal. You know, like that's the crazy part. And so without paperwork in, in play, you run the risk of like having to negotiate all of that. Now knowing that there's a real deal on the table, people get real funny when there's real money. Right. And so that's where it becomes a little bit problematic. However, to your benefit, if you actually provided creative contributions, which again would still be a legal assessment to kind of figure out the facts of the case, right? Um, depending on your contributions, like if you were a co-writer of that script um, and not just a, a ghost writer or someone who was helping to, to doctor the script a little bit, then you may have a claim of copyright infringement because you're technically a co-author of the work. And without that contract, it does not establish that you're, you were a work for hire then that means you're a joint author and it's a joint collective work. <laughs> and so now that that has some leverage in terms of negotiating, because now if you can be a nuisance, right, pinging this party through legal counsel and they've got a deal on the table, but now it's holding up the deal because now they're catching wind that there's somebody who co-authored that's coming out of the woodworks, you can make some noise to get the parties to come to the table. So it, you know, but you don't want to be in that position having to do that, hoping that that works, right? Because that's just more, um, that's more costly from a transactional standpoint. And it's also something that you would have to kind of like fight if you really were ready to proceed forward in litigation to fight on it. That's going to cost you a pretty penny. And then I imagine what are like your the potential partners and buyers thinking? Because they don't want those kind of headaches. Exactly. And so that's the thing, you know, like there's, there's the whole legal side of all this. And then there's optics, third-party optics of like how someone can view your reputation involved on a matter. So like if you wanted to pitch them again, and let's just say it's the same team that also knew that there, there was this messy situation going on, you know, it can ha it could possibly, maybe or not, but it could possibly have an impact where they're like, ah, you know, this party doesn't have their paperwork together. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a lot. And if... You know, with networks and studios, they also have a budget. They have a budget, like they're willing to give advances. I know advances have gotten smaller over time, even though the demand for content has increased. But if there's a set budget from, from the finance department and that studio, like here's where we can allocate. And if they're looking at your project, but it also it seems like it's just like too slow to the races to get going, then they might actually go with another project and move in a different creative direction. Now you've lost that, that time and that party's attention that might be hard to circle back with later on because the desirability of the project may or may not actually be there at that point. Ooh, it ain't worth it. Let me get my paper. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more. Let me get it on paper, baby. I'm going to ask one more question. Uh, our, our writer, Donqua, is very passionate about this question. And then, Marissa, you have to come back for part two. Because I have I got you. Okay. Um, how do you feel about packaged operations like legal zoom? Should should creators <laughs> <laughs> creators be using services like legal zoom? No. Okay, I'm gonna keep it 100. So a lot of times people think like, oh, it's because you're a lawyer, like you don't want us to go to legal zoom because it's cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. It, this isn't even about the economics at this point. Cause I'm not going to, if you're going to legal zoom over like real legal counsel, then I'm not really trying to converse with you about this. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the sense of like, it's not, a, it's not about the money. It's purely about 
the service because what we hate as attorneys is how you know companies like LegalZoom get wrapped into the legal field and then how we get bad reputations of like quality of service, right? Or the lack of service. So it's really more about that than it is about an economic thing. Um, the issue with LegalZoom, number one, LegalZoom is not going to really help you with any contracts, even when it comes to, I, I know we haven't talked about like trademarks and um, forming, you know, forming companies, but essentially they don't have legal staff that actually can give legal advice. So you don't get legal advice. What do you do? You actually went on LegalZoom, those of you who may have done it. And I get it. Like as a consumer, you're like, I'm trying to do something real quick and cheap. <laughs> you know, let me get this done. But you may not have done it right. You may you may or may not have. If it was like a true simple on forming LLC, it's just me. Here's my name. Here's the address, et cetera, et cetera. Boom. It, that's pretty straightforward. But there's something called even with an LLC, an operating agreement. And that's the internal governing document. If you are not the sole owner, or even if you are the sole owner, you still want to have, in some states, they require you to have that document. LegalZoom will charge an extra fee for you to go ahead and get such paperwork. They never ask you any questions, though, about your company, what you're trying to do, uh, what you're in the business of, what are your goals, and you know what happens. I feel like all these questions that we as counsel would ask, they're not asking you. They just basically send you a template you probably could have found online yourself. So that's the disservice that they're doing because they're not tailoring anything to your specific needs. And that's the difference between these types of companies versus actual legal representation. Okay. Well, there you have it, y'all. Marissa's thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst where I hear with the trademarks. It's, it's the absolute worst. Folks are like, oh my gosh, trademarks are so expensive. I mean, I could just go to LegalZoom and then file the application or they'll file the application will be done. But then I have people come back and they're like, can you check for me? I haven't heard anything from LegalZoom. And they took the money and they never filed anything, but they filed it completely incorrectly because they didn't understand the nature of the client's usage of that trademark. So even if they successfully filed, it was probably an area that they don't really operate in. So with trademarks, it's not, you know, carte blanche protection over the name and exclusivity over the name in all arenas, it's only in the classes that you file in. So now you just, you know, spent money there that wasn't worth it. And those are non-refundable filing fees as well to have to do the process all over again. Child the ghetto. Y'all just, <laughs> just do it right the first time. Save your coin. Come see Marissa. Marissa, if people wanna, if people wanna engage you as, uh, as legal counsel, which this is not a promo, but Marissa is my gift <laughs> legally and on the business side. So again, not a promo, but I've been working with her for probably about two years. Um, yeah. And it's been mm -hmm, and actually it's been, earlier than that, I think like 2019. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's been amazing. She has just, she's guided me on all the things. And if anybody wants to ask me more questions, you can hit me up on social about my experience with Marissa. I'm more than welcome to share. But Marissa, if people want to engage with you, where do they find you? How does it work? Yes, um, actually, I have my website, which is www.crespolawoffice.net. Um, you can do .com as well. It'll reroute to the same site. Um, I have my Instagram social media handle is clo underscore entertainment. Um, and if you want to reach out for a consultation, 
um, you can just contact me through the website and I'll follow up by email to schedule time with you. I love it. Thank you, Marissa. <laughs> no, thank you so much. I'm glad, I'm glad this to be doing this. It's all about education. It is. Thank you for educating us. We need it. So I'm going to hit you up so we can schedule a part two. And now I have all the questions, which might lead into a part three. But we'll talk about that in part two. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you guys have a great one. Thank all you right. so much again. Thank you, Marissa. Talk to you all later. Right. Bye-bye. Take care.